Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It is on page 491 in your uh, Red Pew Bibles. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. We do have some things in here. I was wondering if we had uh, things in the box yet, and we do. This, I always tell you that I always have a commercial at the beginning. This is the commercial. We've been, we were fortunate this year to be able to supply a number of families with uh, food that were in need during the Thanksgiving season. But as we did that, we were getting calls from food banks that to see if there was uh, food available because they were running out. This is a time in our society of great need, and uh, this is a need we may be able to supply. Now, I understand that some of you are going through really hard times yourself, and so there's limitations on what you can do. Others of you look at the other kinds of projects that we've uh, established as things we want to do as a congregation, and you are doing as much as you can. But I would really like to see you put an extra can in your shopping bag when you go uh, to the market, uh, maybe two, or a box of something that will, can last and be used, and to bring them here and we put them in the box. And as we gather food in the box, well, the first thing we will do is make sure that Love Inc. has what they need, and then the rest of it will go directly to food banks so that it's available. So if you are fortunate enough to eat regularly and be able to get that extra can or whatever, we would just like you to bring it and put it in uh, the box so that there is food pl uh, uh, plenty on the tables of a lot of the people that right now are going through a real struggle. And for that, I think God will bless us. And the more important, the other point is that I think God's blessing goes with these kinds of gifts that are given in love, even though we may not know the people that we're dealing with. So that's commercial for today. Uh, next, as you go to the store this week, an extra can, an extra box of macaroni and cheese or something else, and uh, bring it to the box, okay? That's what we're looking forward to. This scripture that we read this morning 
is a foretaste, a forelooking, a foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. We look at the situation of the people at this time, and Isaiah knows that the evil that Israel has done, that Judah has done, is bringing to them the judgment of God. And he makes that quite clear in his book. But you know, one of the things that I have discovered as I've studied scripture and I've looked at life is that God does what he needs to do as a just God, but he never leaves us without hope. He doesn't leave us without hope. And so bad things may be seen coming, but in the midst of those things, God provides hope. And here we are in this situation. Isaiah knows what's going to happen. He tries to uh, call the people's attention to what's happening for them to change their ways, and yet they're not changing. And Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, tells them what's going to happen. He even names the person that will allow them to come back uh, to the land of Israel when they are, to the, uh, when they are taken away. And in the midst of all of that, God says, there's ones coming. It may be look like that Judah has been cut off, that the king, the descendants of David have been cut off, but it's not going to happen. Out of that root, out of that root that has such a, uh, that has uh, the cut down tree that is Jesse, I'm going to bring the Messiah, the king, who will be king forever. He's going to bring him. And so when we look at this scripture, we want to see that for the day. I'm told that when they crown a new king or a new queen in England, the crown that they wear is of glittering jewels and royalty and resplendent in robes in the Church of England. Now, are we echoing to you a lot? It's really interesting to hear my voice in quite that fashion. I like to hear me talk, but I prefer it be not quite so uh, clear as we deal with that. Thank you very much. Um, I can remember seeing Queen Elizabeth uh, crowned on TV, but it was black and white TV, so, you know, all the jewels were black and white. Uh, they weren't particularly glittering as I looked at, at them. But the, the king or the queen wears the robes and the glittering jewelry, but they also wear elaborate robes that represent the fact that they are also uh, the head of the Church of England. And so included in what they wear are the symbols that say that the king or the queen is the head of the Church of England as well. But in the midst of this crowning, in the midst of this ceremony, a person comes forth wearing a long, plain, black pulpit robe with the white tabs at the collar. And they step forward amid all this splendor of all this pageantry, and he faces the, king, the new king or the queen. This person is the monitor of the Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian fundamentally. And he presents to the royal person a Bible. And in that presentation, he says this, I present to you the lively oracles of God. The lively oracles of God. 
Well, today, I want to present to you the lively oracles of God. The lively oracles of God. That, those lively oracles is that book that we call the Bible. There are 66 books in that one book that we call the Bible, and they are the lively oracles of God. So what is the Bible to us? What do we make of the Bible? Our first thought is often the issue of comfort. When we are in the midst of trouble, when someone has died that is close to us, we turn to scripture for comfort. We turn to scripture for courage, and it is appropriate that we do that. But this is a book of books, and the book of the books also tell us of the mighty, glorious story of God's presence with man. And that also is a scripture. Is scripture. Again, the Bible is an important because of the ideas it contains. For example, one of the ideas is our great, that great triumphs often come from the darkest times. When everything seems lost, the scripture tells us it's not. It's not the end, and it's not lost. The, when they faced the issue of the death of Jesus on the cross, the disciples, even though they had been with him all of those years, didn't know what to make of it. They were, well, we use the word depressed, they were more than depressed. They were devastated. But there's always hope. There's always hope. And the greatest triumph came from that dark moment. And so it is in many places in Scripture. When all seems lost, when there seems to be nothing to hope for, God moves into the picture. And so we see that in Scripture. And so when you are in despair, understand that. That in the dark moments, great things can happen. The Bible is also important because it tells of the dream that people held for a thousand years of the coming of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. All through the Old Testament, there is a yearning for the Savior, the Savior that is to come. And in Malachi, it says, I will send my messenger. And then in Isaiah, the very famous, well-known scripture in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verses 6 through 7, that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Men dreamed of a Savior, and God sent the Christ. And he sent him even in a manger. Even in a manger. These are helpful facts 
but we must look further if we're really to know the Bible. When the moderator of the Church of Scotland presents the Bible to the Queen of King, the Queen and King, he says, I present to you the lively oracles of God. Well, if you look at your insert and filling out number one, you see that lively means active. Active. The Bible is not a dead book that just tells you about what happened in the past, but it is living as it lives in us and through us. It is the very word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible is living in this world and affects this world. And it's important that we remember that and understand that. And then oracles are announcements. God announces to us. One of the things that is unique about Christianity among what we call the world's religions, although I don't much like calling Christianity a religion, but among world's religions, is it's not a story of us climbing up to God and clawing up to God and trying to establish some kind of ladder or climb some kind of mountain, but rather it is the story of God reaching down to man, to realizing the need, to knowing the need, and planning for our salvation. He does that. It is important that we see that that he does that. So we are presenting this morning the active announcements of God. The active announcements for God. There is a word that we use for some of the things I will talk about this morning, or I should say there are some of the things I'll talk about this morning that are included in a word that's used. I simply tell you the word to prove that I've been to college. And they call it the kerygma. It is the central teachings of scripture. It is, are the, it is the teaching that make us Christians. Understanding. We can disagree about a lot of things, and it's fine. End times, fine. We have a different view of it, fine. No problem. Exactly how the, how the Holy Spirit operates in the world, we may have some disagreements on how that happens. That's fine. But there is a core of teaching. There is a core of teaching that if you don't believe it, if you don't understand it, you can't be a Christian because the Christian faith isn't there unless you have those core beliefs. And like I say, we call it the kerygma. So you can take that word home and just throw it around. You walk into a room and start talking about the kerygma. You don't really need to know what it means. Just start using the word and people will think you're really intelligent. Uh, that's the reason why I use it um, in order for that purpose. But basically, it is what is the message of the Bible. That's what it's about. What are the active announcements of God? So let's look at some of these. In the 11th chapter, which was read, in the very first two verses, it says, There shall come forth a rod. That rod, by the way, is Christ. From the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You see, this tells us that the Messiah is coming. Regardless of how dark it looks, regardless of what the situation of Judah at that time, 
regardless of the fact that they were going to be carried off into captivity and be under the thumb of foreign rulers for 70 years, in spite of all of that, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Know that. Know that. The Messiah is coming. This first, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that God acts. As we deal with the kerygma, one of the things we understand is that God acts. He always has acted. It's one of the primary understandings we have that God is not dead. I'm always reminded of the story that they tell us, and I understand it's true. You know that Nietzsche was a philosopher in the 1800s, and he propounded that God was dead. And in, the, and in one college dorm room sometime later, there was a sign that said, Nietzsche is dead, God. So that we understand. God is not dead. He is alive today. There are many examples in his scripture that tell us that God acts. He created the world that we're on. He opened the Red Sea. He turned the world upside down with a baby. With a baby, he turned the world upside down. More than that, God acts today. You look at your insert again. God acts today. He not only acted, he not only intervened in the world and the scripture came out of it, but he is today active and, act and acting. We look at the present world, it seems dim and dark. We look at all the threats that we face from enemies in the United States and enemies outside the United States, and it looks bad. We look at some of the moral underpinnings that have supported our society over the years, and it looks bad. We look at our economy right now and the amount of debt that's involved and we look at it and we say, it really looks bad. I have news for you. This is not the first time in history that it has looked really bad. It's not the first time that we have been threatened by powerful enemies inside and outside the United States. It's not the first time that the economy has gone south. It's happened before. And if, God, and if Christ tarries, it will happen again. When this present time, when we are through with this present time, unless Christ returns, we'll get to do this one again. Maybe not me personally, but my progeny will get to do it. We know that that is true. But, regardless of the time in which we live, we need not despair. We need not give up because God is active in the world today. He is active in the world today. He's not far off. The fact of the matter is, in all of the sin that is going on, in all of the hate that exists in the world, God is still moving to shape the world as he chooses. He still is in control. 
in the 1950s, if you lived back then, by the way, if you didn't live back then and you've watched Happy Days, the 50s weren't like that. I just should tell you that. They weren't like that. We often picture the 50s as some kind of ideal time. I lived through it. Let me tell you, it was not an ideal time. I can remember getting under my desk at school, uh, holding my hands over the back of my neck because we were going to save ourselves from an atomic bomb by doing that. Probably not, by the way. They would have us practice go out on the playground, and if we're on the playground, have us lay down and put our hands over our necks and wait for the bomb to go off. I remember that really well. There seemed to be enemies everywhere. Communism seemed to be taking over the world. There were videos and films out. There were preachers who were telling us, this is the end of the world. Nothing can be done. They were looking at the sin of the time, and there was sin at the time. And there was nothing to be done. You know, I don't know. I cannot tell you whether this is the time that Christ will return. What I know is I am in the hand of God. When I would come home from school and start talking to my father about what they were telling us at school, about how dangerous it was, he would say, don't worry about it. This is God's world. It will end when he decides. And not when the communists or the United States decide. He will decide. And so we know that in the midst of trial and trouble, either personal or nationally or worldwide, God is in control. We need not worry about that. Regardless of how things are looking, he will accomplish his will. Then we see that God loves us. You ever wonder if somebody loves you? I've got news for you. God loves you personally. Personally. So regardless, God loves you. All, most all of us can repeat John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. This is an overwhelming truth, the fact of the matter is. He loves us so much that he sent his son to be born. That's what we celebrate now. Whether it was in December or not is immaterial. It probably wasn't. I suspect it was probably in April. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that he came into the world as a baby. That's what we celebrate. What God chose to do in entering the history of man personally and in human form. That he was a hundred percent human being born as a baby with the same needs of any baby. He could not physically take care of himself. He was born as a baby. He chose to be so. He chose to be so. This is the reason for this time of year. Live, he lived on this earth as everybody else did. He died on the cross, an unjust death. But his death was like everyone else's except that he rose again. And he stands now, according to the scripture, he stands now making intercession for you and for me. He does it now. He does it now. 
God loves everyone. There is not a laborer in the world that God does not love. There's not a prisoner in the world that he does not love. Thank the Lord, there's not a teacher in the world he does not love. There's not a scientist he doesn't love, even politicians. Now that one I have difficulty with. But he does love the politicians. He loved us so much he gave his only son. He loves every person. This is not a complicated theological thought. What we know is he loves Chinese, he loves the Russians, he loves the Americans, he loves the British, he loves Muslims, and Buddhists, and Hindus, and all the others that you can think of. The problem here is that he cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But because he loved us, he sent his son. God, who is the Lord of heaven, knows me with all my warts and faults. And he loves me. He loves me. And that is the message, that is the message that I want to get to you on this day. In his love, there is no malice, there is no envy, there is no hate, there is no trickery. He loves us. This is the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of all the truth that matters, is God loves us. The Bible is filled with assurances of God's love for us. God loves you. In the midst of the trial that Judah was to go through, God loved them and gave them hope. The third, third uh, fill-in says, God has chosen you to love. God has chosen you to love. God has chosen me to love. This love is not based upon what I do. This love is not based on fickle emotion. One of the things I always tell people is remember that emotions are fickle. They will betray you. Emotions are good, but they are not the final answer. What I feel is not the finer arbiter of what I should do and how I should do it. Emotions are fickle, and God's love does not depend on how he feels today. But rather in Romans, the fifth chapter and the eighth verse is, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We don't get cleaned up and then come to God. We sometimes made that mistake, make that mistake. What we need to do is get people all cleaned up and get them to forsake all the stuff that they're doing, and then when they do that, they'll be good enough to come to church and, and, and worship God. The fact of the matter is, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. We can't get that cleaned up, regardless of whether we're considered an upstanding member of our community or whether we are the dregs of the earth, God loves us, and he's the only one that can save us. And he chooses to love us. Love for you, for me, is God's decision to love. The love that is really important is what he decided to do. He decided to create you. He decided to love you.
the fourth fill-in. God challenges us to love others as he's loved us. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A new commandment. It's not a commandment that says, love those who love you. It doesn't say that. In fact, when we look at this, we see in Matthew 43 it's, and 44, it says, 5, 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now there's a 180 degree change in philosophy. That is not naturally what we do. I lived for a, long, for a number of years as a school administrator in the world of tit for tat. If you do me a favor, I owe you a favor. If I owe you a favor, I can expect a favor from you. The fact of the matter is, that's not God's world. That's not the life of the Christian. The Christian loves regardless of what they get back. Regardless of what they get back. And this love is not a sentimental love. It's a love that endures hardness. It's a love that is strong and real. It's a love that defends the weak. It's a love that moves to bring justice to the world. It's a love that, is in, that needs to be around the world and contained in us, whether we are educators or we're working in social services or we're working in the medical field or we're working as a laborer and over a shovel or a backhoe, or we're building, or whatever we're doing, that love needs to be brought to where we are, with us. It needs to come with us. Love is important in this world, and the church is challenged to go forth in love. We have, as our name, Neighborhood Christian Fellowship. Guess where the love needs to go? It needs to go into our neighborhood. And we usually define neighborhood in, in terms of geographic area, but did you know that sociologists today don't define neighborhood that way? Yeah, we have a neighborhood that is our geographic area. We need to be concerned about that neighborhood, but each one of us also has a neighborhood that surrounds us. Not only physically, but in connections. What's the word? Oikos. I always forget the, the word. Sorry about that. Oikos. That group of people that we affect and that affect us. We are to bring God's love to our communities, both physically and socially. And we are the Neighborhood Christian Fellowship. That's our task. Another message of the Bible, of the kerygma, is that God saves. We understand that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is, however, an assurance of pardon. There's an assurance of pardon because he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we confess our sins, if we turn from them. He lifts us from sin and death to life and saves us from despair. He saves us from pride and self-satisfaction. He saves us from spiritual death and damnation. And so number five says, God 
saved you, or he will save you if you come to him. The assurance is there. He has either already saved you, or he will save you if you let him. When in the night, our ship strikes an iceberg and sinks, or a hidden disease is revealed in our body pointing to suffering and to death, we need not despair. God is near. God is sufficient. It is to him we turn because we know his judgments are right and he loves me. His statutes are songs in the house of our pilgrimage, it says in Psalms 48, uh, 40, verse 8. He is merciful to us even when we've let him down. He measures those who have accepted him. He measures their sin no more. No more. No more. So what is the message of the Bible? Here, are, here is some of the message of, God, of the Bible that's important. That active oracles, the lively oracles of God. Here it is. God acts. God loves. God challenges us to love. God saves. God saves. Look at the scripture. Read the scripture. The Bible is intended for you and for me. We are fortunate to live in a period of, the, of history where nearly every one of us is literate. We can read. And regardless of what level of reading we have, somebody has translated the scripture into a vocabulary that we can understand. From the simplest to the most complex. And there are there. There's no reason that we do not read his scripture. That book that contains life in it, that is ours to have, God saves. God saves. So search for the assurance of the things he has done in your life and the things he will do in your life because it's there in scripture. I present to you the greatest treasure that man has ever had. I present to you the lively oracles of God. Let us pray. Father, I don't understand it. I don't know why you sent your son except that you love us. I don't know why you love us, but I'm thankful that you do. And so this morning in this congregation, there are people that have been on the way, their Christian life for a long time. Be with them and bless them and encourage them to go on. There are others here that are newer in the faith and still learning about the faith, and we ask that you'll be with them and provide them wisdom. And there are Christian babes who have just barely entered the door, and you love them and care for them and give us the body, the ability to care for them and help them to feed on your word. And then, Father, there may be some here who do not know Christ as Savior, who are outside that circle of salvation, I ask that you'll be with them this morning and that your Holy Spirit will work in their lives to bring them to the point of salvation. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you for giving us a message that is reliable and true yesterday, today, and forever. For all of this, we praise you. Amen.